0: Thank you, Christy. It's so great to have folks who can pitch in and help out when we need it, and such talented people in our church family. I'm grateful. Well, this morning we're going to look at some of the things happening inside the community of the Jews. But before we do, I want to remind us of what has been going on around them. You'll remember, as a city, Jerusalem is under construction. The walls are being rebuilt, and it's being done under a great deal of opposition from the nations that surround them. They have literally come from every direction, and they persistently mock, threaten, and demean those who are working on the walls. You may remember some of the things that they were telling them. We talked about it last week. They walked up to the men working on the walls and said, Look at those miserable Jews. Is that the best you can do? I mean, I bet if a fox stepped on that wall, it would come down. (laughs) And not only that, if you continue to build, we're going to start taking you out one right after another. Over and over again, they continue they're demoralizing propaganda to the point that the Jews begin to believe the words of the enemy. <laughs> They're right. We're, we're kind of feeling weak and, and tired. Not to mention the fact that the, the stones we're using to rebuild this war are the ones that had been already knocked down. I just don't think we're going to be able to finish the work we've started. The Jews are losing hope. And they're growing weak with despair. And and Nehemiah is doing everything he can to turn their attention from the lies of the enemy to the promises of God. He's wisely equipping them to face their fears and to continue the the work on the wall. He, He tells them, our God will fight for us. The idea here is that if God is for us, then it doesn't matter who else is out there. Nobody can be against us because nobody's greater than our God. But as you can imagine, they continue a daily struggle to believe in those promises of God amidst very heavy and difficult circumstances that surround them. And I think that's a reality of, that many of us can relate with even today. You see, it's within this context that Nehemiah receives some disturbing news about a new and even more dangerous threat to the community of the Jews. Keep in mind, those who have been working on the wall are no longer in their homes in those surrounding communities. Because as a city, Jerusalem is more or less a pile of, of rocks. It will m- remain mostly uninhabited until that wall is completely destroyed finished and when that work started the people would come from their homes in the communities that surrounded jerusalem they would do their work during the day and then they would return home to their families at night but when the opposition began to be so strong and the the threat so significant nehemiah made a call that required everybody to stay on task and those men who were working on the walls now stayed and lived in jerusalem so that they could provide a defense by night and continue to work by day. And while they were away, a new enemy infiltrated the Jewish communities back home. And this enemy has an even greater power to destroy than the enemies that surround Jerusalem. It's a spiritual disease that will become a devastating epidemic unless something is done to prevent the spread of this deadly infection. And that disease is selfishness and greed. It has become a cancer killing the nation of Israel from the inside out. It's like an autoimmune disease where cells that were intended to heal have turned on themselves, and they begin to destroy. Now, I want you to know, as we look at our passage this morning, it's very important that we pay attention to the details. Because that disease that has infiltrated the Jewish community is alive and well in the church today. Selfishness is like a genetic mutation that you can never officially get rid of it's always there it's only if you can uh, see the symptoms early enough to to treat it that it can stays in check but we need to know what that looks like so that we can protect this family from the infection that destroys from within we want to be all that god has designed this church to be but like the jews will learn it only happens when selfishness doesn't get in the way. So before we look at that this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm convinced that this message is incredibly relevant. It's very significant. Not just in what we learned from the historical perspective of Nehemiah and the Jews, but the significance of what it means for the church of Jesus Christ right here and now. And if there's ever a time that the church needs to be bold, needs to be strong, needs to have a light that shines among the nations, today is that day. May you allow us to see the truth of your word in ways that impacts our heart to such a degree that it changes our lives. Have your way. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. I told you last week that I skipped it on purpose, that we would come back to it this morning. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to find out about this problem that has made its way to the ears of Nehemiah and those in Jerusalem. So begin reading with me in Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 1. Says, now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses, that we might get grain because of famine. There were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on the fields and on our vineyards. And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And We are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. It was an outcry so great that it, left the surrounding communities of Jerusalem and made it right into the city where Nehemiah and the people were. The original language describes a, a cry of distress distress coming primarily, it says, from the, the wives and the mothers left back home. Again, remember, most of the able-bodied men were in Jerusalem working on the wall. The wives and the children remained back home. These families were complaining because they were being treated unfairly, it says, by their Jewish brothers. You see, the Jews, by and large, were an agrarian society. They lived off the fruit of the land. They were farmers. And what they harvested was the food they needed to feed their families. But a series of events has made this increasingly difficult. One of those we just mentioned, the men who are typically out there doing the harvesting are in Jerusalem doing the building. And so there's a shortage of helpers. To add insult to injury, verse 3 says that there is actually a famine in the land. So now you have fewer workers with a lower yield. And as a result, there wasn't enough. People are going hungry. Now we all know about drought in this area, don't we? And so we know how devastating this could be, especially when that's what you're depending on to put food on the table. And under normal step circumstances, you might think, well, the Jewish community could then go around to other communities who maybe have had grain or have larger uh, pieces of property where they had more to give. But you've got to remember, those nations that surround this Jewish community don't want them there. And so how likely are they going to be to to lend a helping hand. Not at all. In fact, this might be just the leverage they need to convince the Jews to go ahead and move on down the road. Since that's the case, the Jews only had one choice. They had to depend on one another. They had to rely on the compassion of, of relatives and friends within that community. But unfortunately, even that was working against them. Let me explain what's happening. You see, there were wealthy Jewish landowners who lived in these communities. And they were more than willing to help when these needs came up and people began to ask for some help. They said, sure, we'll be, we'll be glad to help you. Here's a loan, but what I'm going to need from you in return is some collateral. I'm going to need to have your home as collateral, or your fields if you've got any property. In other words, the wealthy Jewish landowners were forcing those who already had no money to go deeper into debt to supply food for their family at home. it's not only applied to the necessity of food it it talks about a a tax applied by the king it's like a property tax that we pay today it gives us the ability to be in our homes well if they didn't have money for food you know they're not going to have money for that either The, the wealthy jews said that's not a problem we'll be glad to lend you money as well under the same conditions the poor were being forced to go into debt by the wealthy in order to supply the basics of food and shelter for their families and you can probably see where this is going as that famine continued over time these people had no food they had no money to buy food you only have so much collateral before you're out of that as well and then there's only one option left look again at verse five and now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers our children like their children Yet, behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. See, when their property wasn't enough, these wealthy landowners were now taking the children to be their slaves on their land. It speaks specifically in verse 5 of the daughters. The original language has some sexual overtones to it. It gives the idea that these families were, these men were bringing these ladies in to be like second wives in their households. No wonder the outcry was so great. This is not a good situation. And so let's look and see how Nehemiah responds in verse six. Then I was very angry when i heard their outcry and these words and i consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them you are exacting usury each from his brother therefore i held a great assembly against them i want to pause there for a minute to address nehemiah's response first of all it says that he's very angry What's interesting about that is the the word here in Hebrew is the exact same word we ran across back in chapter 4 with Sanbele. You remember that? Remember it said he was very angry. Same word. And we talked about how significant that was. He was enraged. And so is Nehemiah. He's not just a little bit perturbed about what's happening in these communities. He's enraged. And rightly so. The selfishness and greed of his own people had become a greater enemy than the opponents that surrounded the city. In fact, his own people had become their worst enemy. But look at the verse, beginning of verse 7. It says that he consulted with himself. It's an interesting term, isn't it? He was very angry. And so he stopped and consulted with himself. In other words, he considered his response very carefully. He was justifiably angry. And there is no sin in that. But he knew that if he didn't stop and collect himself, there would be when he spoke out of that anger. And so he contended with himself. It's a very precarious position that Nehemiah is in. We know from what we talked about in the beginning, with all that is happening around them, they're hanging on by a thread. And now this? This is not a good situation. Nehemiah needed to conduct himself with some very godly wisdom. And that kind of wisdom does not flow naturally out of angry emotions. So he stops collects himself and calls a great assembly to hear his concerns now that's an interesting strategy <laughs> because normally what you do is you take this case between the leaders and the officials in the land here's the problem they're the accused and so instead of that he calls all the people together and he speaks to them as a group it reminds me of a conversation I had with Glenn Frick recently. And he was telling me about a strategy that Coach Leland Bearden had when he coached girls' basketball. He would tell the parents before the season ever started, gathered them together and said, here's what we're going to do. Give them a little bit of my philosophy of coaching. He says, if at any point in time during the season you have a question or concern about your child's playing time, I'm glad to listen. Here's how it's going to work. When you communicate that concern... I want to make sure that all the parents are with you because I want everybody to hear what your concern is and then we'll work on the answer together. (laughs) I think that's genius. I mean, really, think about that. Essentially, that's what's happening with Nehemiah. He does something very similar. He says, hey, let's not decide this in private where these rich and powerful people can leverage that. Let's, let's settle this in the court of public opinion. Let's let everybody hear the concern. Now look at verse 8. And I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would, e- now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Here's what happened. Nehemiah makes a reference to having redeemed their brothers from slavery. Now, at first glance, I looked at this and thought, well, maybe he's thinking back to the fact that they've just been released out of slavery from Babylon. So he could be saying, in effect, how can you who've been released out of slavery turn around and enslave your very own? But I think he's talking about something more specific. Because he talks about having buying people out of slavery, doesn't he? Those are the terms he used. I believe he's referring to a specific aspect of the law. Turn to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. Exodus, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 47. Moses, speaking about the law of the people that had been given by God to guide and direct how they conduct themselves, Listen to what it says in verse 47. Now, if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you become sufficient, and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you or to descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold one of his brothers may, or even more accurately, should redeem him. Here's what's happening. The the Spirit of the Law says this. Look, if someone is so poor that they go in debt to a stranger, a foreigner to the nation of Israel, and you see that situation, and you have the ability, redeem them. Buy them out of that slavery. For we should not be in bondage to the nation's. Around us. He's reminding them. Of that law. That moral code. That God called them to live by. And then he says. And yet. You're turning around. And doing to your brothers. What the law says. You shouldn't even let. Pagans do. You see what he's saying. You have lowered yourself. To a level. Beneath that of the nations around you notice the response (laughs) they were silent and that silence reveals their guilt now look at verse 9 and i said the thing which you were doing is not good should you not walk in the fear of god because of the reproach of the nations our enemies Now the first point that he's making with the people is one based on a moral code. That which was given to them in the law that tells them how they should relate to one another. How they should care for one another. You should redeem your brother if he is sold into slavery. And now he's taking a different look. He's looking at it from a spiritual perspective. He's saying, what you're doing is not good because your actions are giving God a bad name while you're out there making a name for yourself. Think of it this way. Jesus says in the New Testament, they will know you are my disciples. How? Because of your love for one another, right? In other words, you reflect my character when you demonstrate love for one another because loving relationships represent the heart of a loving God. And if that's true, what does selfishness and greed say about your God? That's the accusation. Your conduct is saying something about the God you serve. And when it's not loving, then you are giving God a bad name. If you really feared God, you would care more about His reputation than you do your own. Now look at verse 10. And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please, let us leave off this usury. Please, give back to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. Also, the hundredth part of the money of the grain, the new wine, the oil that you are exacting from them. Then they said, We will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath uh, from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garments and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to their promise. I want you to notice in the beginning of that passage how Nehemiah diffuses the situation by bringing in himself into the conversation. Did you notice the pronouns? He says, let us be the ones who come to repentance. We're all guilty of sin. Present company included. Let us do what is right before God. It calls everyone to return the children, to return the homes, to return all the loans without exacting any interest whatsoever. And that conviction must have run deep among the people because what did they say? Yes, this is the right thing to do we will give it back and we will require nothing in return. And so Nehemiah says all right. Let's see how committed you are. He calls out the priests. And he says we're going to make an oath right here all of us together. And he empties his pockets. Now this is weird to us. We don't get used to we don't do stuff like this. But what he's saying is this. Look at this. He says I'm empty And what you're doing when you go before the Lord is you're making a promise. And if you break that promise, may a curse come upon you and make you as empty as my pockets are before you now. The point here is that this is serious. This is a community commitment to do what is right in the eyes of God. So we're not just going through the motions here. We're serious. Because God's name is on the line. Now look at verse 14. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the king of Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. And I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance, because the servitude was heavy on the people. And then he prays in verse 19, Remember me, O Lord, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. This last section is almost like a a sidebar to describe Nehemiah's example of leadership before the people. I think what he's trying to do here is to show us that this was more than just words. He was living it out in the actions of his own life. What I find interesting here is in verse fourteen he describes a role as governor. And the date and time that he gives correlates to when he left the capital. So very likely in those papers that he had giving him authority to come through the land, in there it designated Nehemiah as governor. Let me ask you a question. Has this come up at all before this point? No. It's It's not even mentioned. So Nehemiah didn't roll into town saying, hey, look everybody, a new sheriff's in town. I'm in control. He doesn't mention it. Because Nehemiah is not leading the people out of a position of power. He's leading out of a place of influence. And that influence doesn't come from a title. It comes from relationships built on trust. These verses describe what that looks like. What did he do to gain that trust? It says, as the governor, his his salary would have been derived from a tax to the people. This was customary. So when the governor was appointed, a tax was applied to the people, and that essentially became the governor's salary. And what he describes is that the people who were before him as governors took that tax, had officials that were sent out to uh, obtain that tax. But it was corrupt, much like tax collecting in the New Testament. Because here's what would happen. These officials would go out, and they would not only collect enough tax to make the king rich, they would keep a little for themselves so that they were rich too. And everybody who was in leadership was all happy. And so Nehemiah says, here's what I did. I know what precedes me. And so I took no tax at all. He didn't collect a salary. From the people in fact what he says is i what's required of them by their labor on the wall is sufficient they've done enough they don't need me to ask them for more (laughs) not only that one of the other things that was the the governor was responsible for is he was he was a representative of the king right and so when dignitaries came through He was responsible for hosting a banquet to to show support of the king who was in control of the land as a representative of that king in the office of governor. And what Nehemiah describes here is that he fulfilled that responsibility, but he didn't do it based on the people's money. He did it out of his own savings account. This was his money. Not what he got from the people. It's what he had stored up because of his job back home. And he took that money. And he did what the governor was required to do. Gave the king a good name. Not only that, he represented the people of Judea. And they were known to be a very gracious people to all those who were coming through. All on Nehemiah's dime. I want you to notice Nehemiah's motivation. He says it in verse 15. He says he did this. Why? Because of his fear of God. See, it was his humility before God that prevented any sense of superiority before the people. Do you get that? It was his humility before God that prevented any sense of superiority before the people. And then verse 19, he closes with just a short prayer. He's a man of prayer, so it's not surprising that this shows up yet again. And in this prayer, he talks about, That he doesn't want to make a name for himself. He was there to bring unity among the people in a way that brought glory to God. Nehemiah didn't lead from a position of power, but one of of influence. And his humility before God is what kept him from being superior over the people. So that God's name was made great. As we finish up this morning... Here's what I want us to do. I want us to kind of follow the outline that you see in your bulletin this morning. Because that outline really fits well for a description of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we look at that, we need to recognize and see that we have been born blind ourselves, right? That seed of selfishness is what plagues us all to a person. No one is exempt. It's easy for us to look at a passage like this and look down at those wealthy Jews and forget that we're not all that different than they are. It's Because our sin convinces us of the same thing. It's all about me. To the point that, like them, we can turn our backs on God in pursuit of personal gain. In other words, we just go our own way. We do our own thing. And you don't have to be wealthy for that. You just have to be selfish enough to believe that you can navigate life on your own apart from God. That's all. And there's not a person in this room who has not been there or may even be there now, present company included. We need someone to remind us, just like Nehemiah reminded the people that this kind of pattern in life where the world revolves around me is not right. And it's ultimately destructive. Because if we really feared God, we'd care more about His reputation than we do our own. We would seek His glory more than our satisfaction. We would depend more on His provision than our accomplishments. Right now. Here in 2014, the church of Jesus Christ needs to come to the conviction of the people that we see in our passage. We need a collective commitment to love one another in a way that reflects the love that we receive from Christ. We need to realize that we've been redeemed. You see, the Jews were told back to to look at that that requirement of redemption required in the law, you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, are to look to that payment of redemption made for us on the cross. We've been healed. Our sins have been forgiven through a self-sacrificing love paid for us, our debts on the cross when Jesus sacrificed His life. On our behalf. And so, if God has redeemed us from the burden of sin and guilt, giving us that forgiveness in grace, why would we turn around and hold someone else's bondage because of our own bitterness and heart of unforgiveness? I think we need a resolve, not unlike what we see in our passage this morning to be as equally as extensive as what we saw with the assembly that gathered with Nehemiah. Hold no one in your debt. Enslave no one in your anger. Set everyone free with forgiveness and hold nothing back. That's grace. The church of Jesus Christ, just like that community of the Jews, loses its witness before the nations, when we allow disunity to distort the image of the One we are called to serve. We need to ask ourselves, what do our relationships with one another tell the world about the character of the God we serve? Do we love each other in a way that represents the very heart of a loving God? You want to fight for something? Then fight for peace. Fight for unity. As Paul tells the Philippians, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but consider the needs of the other as more important than your own not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. In fact, have the attitude that we see in Christ Himself, who, although He existed in the form of God, didn't even consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, He made Himself empty, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death so humiliating as a death on a cross. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that is the calling of our life. You've been born again into a community of God's people who exist for a holy mission of making disciples fully faithful to following christ under this law of self-sacrificing love when god's church is committed to god's calling then i can assure you god's name will be glorified among the nations so here's what we're going to do this morning it's a little different than we are used to here at melanie park church all right i want everybody to stand up please not unlike the people in Israel, we're going to make a corporate commitment. Okay. I want you hold your hands out like this. This is your symbolic gesture. That you hold nothing back. Your hands are open. You're going to let everything go that you're holding on to that prevents you from being what God has designed you to be. And we're going to make a corporate commitment. And I want you to take this serious. Because it is a commitment before God. As a people of God. For the sake of His name. And everything I'm going to ask you to communicate this morning is taken straight out of Scripture. You will be saying nothing other than what the Scripture tells us to say. So I'm going to read the first part. And the second part... You're going to read together as a church body. Hands open. Hearts to God. Let's do this together. How great are you, O sovereign Lord. There is none like you. There is no God beside you. Great is your faithfulness. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins, for turning our back on You and going our own way. Forgive our disunity, our distracted desires, our misplaced affections. Turn our heart towards You. Revive us, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within us. Have mercy on us, O Lord. May we be one as You are one. May we reveal the glory that was revealed in Christ. May we be united in His Spirit so that the world may know that God sent His Son to love the world with the love of God. May we be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Fill us with the knowledge of Your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. May we honor You, bearing the fruit of good works and increasing in the knowledge of God. May they see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Strengthen us with all power according to Your glorious might so that we may endure difficulties with patience and enjoy giving thanks to God who has given us an eternal inheritance. God alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be shaken. Thank You for delivering us from the domain of the darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of Your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion, Forever and ever. Amen. That's our commitment. As God's people, for the glory of God's name. Amen. Go in peace and fulfill that commitment.